It had been an incredibly long day on Capitol Hill for Senator John Stennis. He was looking for uh, dinner and just a bit of relaxation when he got home. After parking his car in the driveway, he started to walk toward his front door when suddenly two people came out of nowhere, robbed him, shot him twice, and left him lying on his front lawn for dead. News of the shooting of Senator Stennis, who was the chairman of the powerful Senate Armed Services Committee, rocked Washington, D.C., as well as the entire United States of America. For nearly seven hours, Senator Stennis was on the operating table at Walter Reed Hospital fighting for his life. Less than two hours after the shooting, another Washington political heavyweight was driving home from his own frenzied day on Capitol Hill when news of the shooting reached him. He quickly turned his car around and drove straight to Walter Reed, to the hospital. Once he arrived, he noticed that the staff was swamped, unable to keep up with the incredible volume of incoming calls inquiring about the senator's condition. Spotting an unattended telephone switchboard, he sat down and voluntarily went to work, continuing to take calls all through the night and well into the next day. Sometime that next day, he stood up, he stretched his arms, put on his overcoat. Just before leaving, he introduced himself very quietly to the other operator who was seated next to him. He said, I'm Mark Hatfield, and I'm just happy to help out. Just like that, Senator Mark Hatfield unobtrusively walked out of the hospital. In really quite stunning fashion, one of the most powerful men in the United States humbled himself, didn't he, to answering calls all night long at a hospital switchboard. Humility, right? That's humility. Try this one. Frances Green was an 83-year-old woman who lived alone on Social Security in a town just outside of San Francisco. She had very few discretionary dollars, but for some years, she'd been sending $1 a year to the Republican National Committee. One day, Frances received an RNC fundraising letter in the mail. It was a beautiful marketing piece on thick, cream-colored paper with black and gold lettering. It invited the recipient to come to the White House and actually meet President Ronald Reagan. What Francis didn't notice was the accompanying little RSVP card suggesting that a positive reply must be accompanied by a very generous donation. She thought she'd simply been invited because of the RNC's deep appreciation for her $1 a year support. Francis immediately set about scraping together every cent she had so that she could take a four-day train ride from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. She was unable to afford a sleeper berth, so she slept sitting upright in her seat in coach class. Finally, the day arrived, and sweet Francis arrived at the White House gate, little elderly woman, white hair, white powder all over her face, white stockings, an old hat with white netting, an all-white dress which had yellowed with age. But when she got up to the guard gate at the White House, gave her name, the guard frowned, glanced over the official list, and told her, I'm sorry, ma'am, your name is not on this list. You do not have a meeting with President Reagan, and you cannot enter the White House. Of course, Francis Green was heartbroken. However, there just so happened to be a Ford Motor Company executive standing in line right behind Francis who watched the entire scenario unfold. Realizing her heartbreak, he pulled Francis aside, got the whole story. Then he asked her to come back to that very same White House gate at 9 o'clock the next morning and meet him there. Of course, she agreed. In the meantime, that man made contact with a presidential aide, got clearance to give Francis a tour of the White House, and introduce her to the president. Reagan actually agreed to see Francis. Of course, I'll see her, he said. Now, the next day at the White House was anything but 
calm and easy. Ed Meese had just resigned. There had been some kind of military uprising abroad. President Reagan was in and out of high-level secret sessions all day long. But Francis Green showed up 9 o'clock on the nose, full of expectation and enthusiasm. The Ford Motor Company executive met her at the gate, gave her a wonderful tour of the White House, and then quietly and quickly tried to walk her by the Oval Office, thinking maybe at best she might get a glimpse of the president through a cracked door of the Oval Office. Just then, though, the door of the Oval Office burst open. Members of the National Security Council flooded out, exiting the office. And in the midst of all that hubbub, President Reagan glanced up from his desk and saw Francis Green standing outside the Oval Office door with a smile. He gestured her into his office. As she entered, he rose from behind his desk, calling out, Francis, those darn computers, they fouled up again. If I'd known you were coming, I would have met you at the gate and brought you in myself. He then invited her to sit down, and they talked leisurely all about California, her town, her life, her family. That's humility, isn't it? Two stories, right, of high-profile, modern-day political leaders choosing to eat, quote, humble pie. And, and we like that, don't we? No matter their political leanings, stories like those cause us to increasingly revere those two men. Because while they had absolutely every excuse in the world to act just the opposite with great pride, they were kind of a big deal, they didn't. They were humble. And their humility is an incredibly big deal, isn't it? And here's why their humility is such a big deal. If you go way, way back in history, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, as a matter of fact, one of the things that you could say about the ancient Greeks is they absolutely loved honor. The ancient Greeks revered honor. They loved it so much, they actually had this word that they used to describe their love of honor. Philotimia was their word, which simply means the love of honor. Philotimia was the pursuit of every member of ancient Greek society. Men, women, children, it didn't matter. Life was all about the tangible pursuit of honor. Intangible pursuit of honor. It didn't matter. The goal in ancient Greek society was to accrue as much honor in your lifetime as you possibly could. Why? Because ancient Greek culture, many ancient Mediterranean cultures for that matter, ran on the basis of honor and shame. And here's how it worked. Honor was universally regarded as the ultimate aim of human beings. You live to accrue honor. Shame was regarded as something which was to be avoided at all costs. No shame, all honor. It was that simple. And if you lived in one of the world's honor-shame cultures, you would have woken up every single day seeking to receive as much public honor as you possibly could. Also, every day you would have woken up trying to avoid even a hint of public shame. That was life. Every business transaction, every social interaction, every single move you ever made was very carefully analyzed through the grid of, will this gain me or will this gain my family name more honor? And will this shame me or shame my family in any way? That was life. Now, those of us who have children, we would easily say that one of the things that we want most for our kids is for them to be happy, right? Now, sure, there are more important virtues for our children to attain besides happiness, but if we're making a long list of things we want for our kids, happiness would certainly make the list, wouldn't it? That was not the case in ancient Mediterranean societies, those honor-shame societies. They didn't think like that at all. 
Dads of sons were far, far less concerned with their boys being happy, living morally, or even making money than they were with their son, bringing honor to the family name, especially to their father. Your job, son, is to bring me and bring our family name as much honor as you possibly can. Go get about that, was the marching orders. And in those days, a son might bring great honor through their service toward a military victory, climbing the ladder of societal office, or by some great act of valor on behalf of the entire community. But get this, the honor bestowed upon the person who did any of those things wasn't handed to them because they had conquered evil or because they had made a difference in their community or because they did something that benefited others. Rather, their highest good was the respect and the praise that came via those activities because those activities confirmed the worth and the significance and the merit of the one who carried them out. Now, please don't misunderstand. The ancients absolutely valued things like justice and kindness. They absolutely did. But their end game was to attain increasing sums of honor via acts of justice and kindness. That was life. The other side of the coin is that in ancient Greek culture, any Mediterranean shame, honor culture, a person's greatest fear was to receive public shame at all. Just one example that's not at all a stretch. A Roman husband whose wife was found to be having an affair, he would have felt far more injured by the public shame his wife had heaped upon him and their family name than he would have felt by the betrayal of love itself. Of course, the husband would have been jealous. He's human, right? But the source of his greatest pain would have been the shame that his wife brought upon him and heaped upon their family. And this honor-shame culture thing, it can be difficult for us, especially in our culture, because we don't live in that kind of world. Our society works hard these days at calibrating like good and evil, pleasure and suffering, prosperity and poverty continuums. Honor and shame absolutely carry weight in our world. After all, who doesn't appreciate being praised? Who doesn't seek to avoid public embarrassment? But we wouldn't call those things the defining aims of our lives. So with all that in view, a snapshot of ancient Greek honor-shame culture, where do you suppose the notion of humility ranked in ancient Greek society? A society that placed such an incredibly high value on honor. What would they have thought of humility? Well, just for the record, the concept, the notion, the word is barely ever even mentioned in ancient Greek society. There's this document called the Delphic Canon written sometime around the 6th century B.C., 6th century B.C., old, old document, a document considered by the ancients to be really the sort of sum and substance of the entire ethical life. There is not even a mention of the thread of humility, let alone the actual word, humble, or humility, or any form of the word. In that listing, in the Delphic Canon, it contains 147 pithy maxims of life, things like control yourself, Help your friends, practice prudence, return a favor, etc., etc. There isn't even the word humility, the word humble, it doesn't even show up on that list, which is like stunning, isn't it? It's stunning. Because I assure you, if I were to wheel out a whiteboard and we were to 
take comments and make a list of the top 10 character traits of all of humanity, traits that we revere in people who we most admire, humility would easily make that list probably pretty near the top of that list. It wasn't like that with the ancient Greeks. Not so in any of the Mediterranean honor, shame cultures, as a matter of fact. And so that raises this question, what happened? Like, really, what happened? How did our culture, how did society move from being one that so prized public honor, so despised lowering oneself before an equal, let alone lowering oneself before a lesser, to the place that we're in Today, how did the needle get so radically moved from one extreme to the other such that most people, I think if we were to take a survey, most people in this room would be repulsed by those who brag about themselves and celebrate those who lower themselves for others. Where did all that humility come from? What caused the humility revolution? One word, Jesus Christ. That's two words, sorry. Jesus, one word. More than any other figure in history, Jesus Christ impacted the Western notion of humility and the positive virtue that it's become almost universally. But interestingly, Jesus did not explicitly teach much about humility, did he? Absolutely. He said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. He said things like, love your enemies. He said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn to them the other cheek. But there's really only one time that we get this sort of explicit statement about his very own humility from his own lips. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 and 30. Words of Jesus Christ. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, the burden I give you is light. Lots of times we encounter this text and we're like, yeah, Jesus' yoke is light, it's easy to to bear, take his, but we kind of skip over this part. Jesus actually saying, you should let me teach you because I'm humble, because I'm gentle at heart. And Jesus is talking quite explicitly there about his yoke. That was a really common way for a rabbi, any Jewish rabbi, to speak about their particular way of teaching. So here Jesus is saying, hey, you ought to, all of you ought to embrace my way of teaching because why? I'm gentle and I'm humble. You ought to embrace my way of teaching and living because I'm gentle and I'm humble. And that would have been Stunning talk for a rabbi in Jesus' day. Jesus' talk would have been in very sharp contrast to the highly burdensome rules all the other rabbis were piling on their students. Systems in which the memorization and practice of literally thousands of commandments about everything from work to rest to eating to hand washing to sex to farming to prayer to study was universal with rabbinic teachers. But Jesus in that text, get this, he's not boasting about his humility. He's merely communicating to his would-be followers this place, this newfound place of lowliness and submissiveness in his economy, in his order of things. He's saying, look, in my way of living and teaching, 
This honor, shame thing that you're also accustomed to, remember, that's the audience he's talking to. Honor and shame was everything to them. Gain honor, no shame. Gain honor, he said, no, 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 that's not it. That's not the end game. For me, for us, humility is where it's at. It's all about humility. And that would have absolutely dazed Jesus' first century audience. There's this other time when Jesus, again, turned the world's view of greatness and servitude squarely on its head. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 43. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, which should be a thing of like great honor, right? If you want to be a leader, then you're going to have all this honor. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Like people would have like fallen over when they heard Jesus say this. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone. Where's the honor in being a slave of everyone, everyone else? You've got to be kidding me. For even the Son of Man, that's him, came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' audience would have been standing there like, huh? What? You've got to be kidding me. He's actually saying, Jesus is actually, think like they were thinking. He's actually saying that greatness isn't just about honor. Greatness is about self-sacrifice. Greatness is about lowering oneself. Greatness in Jesus' economy is profoundly exemplified in the crucifixion of all things. Which, by the way, is precisely how it was that humility was so firmly established as a virtue that we so highly regard to this very day. Because see, in Jesus' day, crucifixion was regarded as the ultimate punishment, right? It was actually the most shameful as well as the most brutal thing that could ever happen to anyone. Right? We, we know the story, right? Jesus is stripped of his clothes. He's scourged with leather straps embedded with metal and pottery that would have shredded his flesh. He would have been led naked out to a very public place. He was nailed to this huge wooden beam where he would have been expected to endure hours, sometimes even days, of excruciating pain, eventual asphyxiation. All, by the way, because he loves you. He endured all that because he loves you. He humbled himself to that because he loves you that much. And so it was this incredibly brutal death that Jesus' followers saw him endure. They, they were right there. They looked on and they said, oh my goodness, the greatest man I've ever known has been reduced to the most shameful place the Roman world could possibly dish out, death by crucifixion. But yet somehow for Jesus, the crucifixion wasn't at all humiliating. It wasn't at all shameful, but instead was actually proof that greatness can and does express itself in and through humility. This noble choice to lower oneself on behalf of others. He decided. It was about 30 years after Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. There was this apostle of Jesus Christ, this sort of wild man for Jesus named Paul. 
And Paul wrote a letter to the Christians residing in the Roman colony of Philippi in northern Greece. And in that letter, Paul is urging the Christians in Philippi not to be concerned with accruing as much honor as possible, but rather to live in as much humility as possible. You, Christians, he said, you think of others as better than yourselves. I know the whole world around you is all about this honor-shame deal, but remember what Jesus did. He wasn't about honor-shame. It's different with Christ. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. He's saying, like, don't be just about honor. Rather, Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, just like he did. The greatest man any of us have ever known willingly chose, submitted himself to the cross in all humility, for you. And then there's this cool deal that happens here. The text doesn't necessarily illustrate it, but this line, starting with the word though, that's actually the beginning of a hymn. A hymn that would have been well known to the first Christians. And Paul sort of quotes this hymn in this letter. Let me remind you, he says, though he was God talking about Jesus, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. How many times does the word humble show up in that text? He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It's not about honor and shame anymore, guys. And that text right there is like astonishing is not strong enough word. It is astonishing. And it's not so astonishing to us because we've had a couple thousand years of reflection around this notion of greatness being expressed in humility. But the fact that the very first Christians could in the very same breath say or even sing God and cross would have been absolutely bizarre. We, we can't understand how bizarre that would have been. The very notion, see, of any great person, let alone God himself, could be in any way associated with the most shameful of Roman punishments. Death on a cross was as out there in left field as anything they had ever heard in their entire lives. Their hair would have been blown back. Like, you gotta be kidding me. And Paul says, that's it. Humble yourselves. It's not about honor, shame. It's all about humility. And that, Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross, his rising, his willing choice to stoop on our behalf actually spawns something that historians refer to as a revolution of humility. Jesus started a revolution of humility. It's not about honor and shame anymore. Those are absolutely turned on their heads. Jesus, the most highly honored, revered son of God, lowered himself willingly to a shameful cross. And in so doing, he didn't become an object of scorn, but instead became the model to be praised and followed after and emulated by us a couple thousand years later. Be humble, Paul writes. 
Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Guess what? Honor isn't what you thought it was. Paul's exclaiming, honor isn't what you thought it was. Jesus proclaims, your definition of greatness that you've carried with you for as long as you've carried it with you, throw it in the garbage can. Because the greatest man you've ever known chose to forego his status for the sake of others. And it's our challenge today. You want to be great? You serve others. You humbly serve others. Because according to Jesus, the supposed shameful place is now actually the place of honor, highest honor. The low point is actually the highest point imaginable. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And would you just give yourself to meditating on that notion of humility? humble pie and all that goes in to humility. And maybe just in a moment of reflection with the Lord, you just ask him, God, what is it that you want to download to me regarding my personal humility? God, what is it that you want to say to me about me foregoing my status for the sake of others? What is it, God, that you want to say to me about that? And then once you've heard from him, just fire this question back at him. And God, what do you want me to do about that? Yeah, God, I, I, I hear you. Just tell him. You hear him. You, you, you get him. Yep. And in light of what it is that you're saying to me about humility, what do you want me to do about that? What's the next step? What's true about us is that we long to be humble like your son Jesus Christ was humble. And it's never easy, it's quite complex. 
challenges around being humble abound. And yet, God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you just pierce through any excuse that we have for not rolling up our sleeves on this one. And God, we know there's this interesting piece about wanting to be humble in that it requires often really difficult work that you gotta do in us. Oftentimes there's a breaking down, a stripping away, tearing apart even. But because we so want people to see you in us, that's our prayer. No matter how difficult or arduous or painful that road might be, the breaking and the stripping and the tearing, we just say it's worth it because we want people to see you in us. And so Jesus, bring your humility to bear in our hearts and in our lives and in our words. Bring your humility to bear. Please so that the world around us sees you.